Since the dawn of civilization, humans have endeavored to become stronger and faster. From the invention of the wheel to today, history is replete with men and women who have applied innovation to fitness. But in the past 50 years, while millions have made livings in this industry, a select few have taken that passion to the highest level, creating brands and products known across the globe. Today we celebrate these pioneers, for they are the Gym Class Heroes. Welcome, everybody, to Episode 3 of Gym Class Heroes, presented by Athletic Business Magazine and the iClubs Conference, coming November 20th and 22nd uh, in San Diego, California. Favorite city in the world. Favorite city in the world. A, a marvelous place. My first Ursa show was in San Diego. So uh, so it's uh, it will bring back, I'm sure, great memories, <laughs> early memories of Ursa. And you know what the coolest thing I think about the iClubs conference that they have? You know guess, the guest speaker is, don't you? Magic Johnson. Irvin Magic Johnson. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That is very cool. By the way, do you know what Magic Johnson's friends call him? Mr. Magic? They do not. They do not. Our guest, Chris Clausen, do you know what Magic Johnson's close friends call him? I'm going to guess they call him Irvin. They do, that is a likely guess. That is not true. <laughs> His closest friends call him Buck. I did uh, not know that. Yeah. So if you ever if you run into him, not only should you call him Buck, but tell him Lee says hi. <laughs> Buck Johnson. Buck Johnson, <laughs> which all of a sudden makes him sound a little bit more like a hunter than a basketball <laughs> star. Outdoorsman. Yeah, a great outdoorsman. So uh, showtime gone wrong. Um, well, anyways, this is, uh, as we said, episode three of uh, Gym Class Heroes, and we're very excited to have Chris Clausen from Life Fitness. Speaking of athletes, uh, Chris, am I right? You you were a professional athlete. I was. I played professional baseball for three seasons with the Atlanta Braves for two and the Houston Astros for another and the Minor league days back when they didn't have beautiful stadiums like they have now with amazing facilities and mascots and all the things that they have that make it seem like a sort of a amusement park. It was a little more, I'll just say it was a little, a little bit more commonplace to see things like broken concrete and showers that ran cold and concrete floors that had dirt from the, the team that was there before it used cleats. So, wasn't quite as uh, glamorous as it is today in the minor leagues. <laughs> I, and I so haven't I've heard. Got to, Sorry, I've got to ask. I've got to ask. Favorite baseball movie of all time? Natural. <laughs> there you have it. There you have it. By the way, appropriate as we've been calling Jose in the natural all morning since he had an outstanding <laughs> softball game last <laughs> night. Um, so how long were you in pre- professional baseball? Three years. Three years, and uh, and and what got you out of it? Well, they do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to. You get the, the difference between professional sports and regular jobs is every single year in professional sports they bring in a whole new group of people that they have to make room for. And in a regular job, you know, you leave your job or you don't perform, whatever the case may be. And you know, there's there's turnover, but you know, you're talking about several hundred people that get drafted every year plus free agent signings and they all have to go someplace and there's only so many places to put them so in the minor league system which is unique to baseball it's different than other sports you have 
a couple different levels of rookie league. Typically, there's three, three, and sometimes four levels of rookie league if you include the, the fall baseball season, which is the developmental league. You have multiple levels of single A baseball, so they typically have short season A ball, A ball, and high A ball. They have one level of double A, one level of triple A, and then you're at the big leagues. So every year, somebody's got to make room for all the new people to come in, plus the people come over in trades and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, you, there's, a, there's a weeding process. Sort of if you think of the Jack Welch, I'm just know, about to say that. GE, where they're going to, to eliminate a certain percentage, you're going to be eliminated for my talofibular ligament, my right ankle, and missed 11 weeks of the season. And there were guys that were younger than I was and guys that were better than I was, and they had to make room, and I was gone at the end of the season. Yeah. So when you when you uh, when you decided to uh, to move on from baseball, let's just say it was your decision. Um, what was the what's the one thing you brought from baseball to the business world uh, that you think has been uh, has helped you be successful? Well, I would say I'll use the word resiliency because that's probably what what you feel. You have you have to be resilient in baseball, particularly when you're a fielder. Because I shouldn't say particularly. I guess it's the same as a pitcher. It's just the time in between is a little bit different. But as a as a hitter, if you're a fantastic player, you fail seven out of ten times. And you know I I failed more than seven out of ten times. So you have to accept the fact that you're going to fail, but you have to recover and you have to rebound. But you also have to refocus immediately because one bad at bat can turn into ten bad at bats. One bad game can turn into five bad games. And all of a sudden, you're in a, a situation where you're really down and out. So you have to recover after each failure. And you have to accept the fact that there are going to be people, people who aren't going to be pleased with your performance. Even if you do well, you didn't do as well as they wanted you to do, both on your team, coaching staff, as well as the fans. And you get instant feedback, which is a lot different than business. Sometimes you don't get instant feedback wow. because your strikeout doesn't show up until later on. And you, you have to figure out ways to recover. And, you know, in baseball get instant feedback as you walk back to the dugout as people are yelling at you. <laughs> Wait, what position did you play? I played center field. Incidentally, don't want to bring you, make this about me, but yesterday I was playing center field, made a great diving catch. I got a boo-boo, but I didn't cry because there's no crying in baseball. Just there is no want to point that out again. <laughs> so, uh, so three years in the system – they make the decision for you, and do you go right into uh, equipment sales? Actually, I had off-season job when I moved to California. My off-season job was working at Oshman Sporting Goods, and it just so happened it was, it was fortuitous in many levels. One is it was close to my home, but when I moved to California, I decided I wanted to look for something I thought would be enjoyable as opposed to just employment. So I applied at sporting goods stores, and I applied at music stores. And was very fortunate to have several opportunities, but the one I chose ended up being far more than I ever anticipated. One, because there were several people working there that were in the minor leagues, and some that had roommates that were actually major leaguers. So and I not only had an instant job, but I also had instantly people to work out with that had access to San Diego State, access to University of San Diego, access to Hoover High School, access to all these facilities. And so I had instant friends and people to throw batting practice to me and people to hit fly balls to me, and it was great. It was a great situation. And the, the best part of it was 
their business was structured where their high season was my off season and their low season was my baseball season. So I left when they wanted me to leave and I came back when they needed me. So when, when, when you were released though, I mean, it was like, this is the only way for me to go. Uh, I mean, did you know you were going to go into the fitness industry? Well, I, I was still in school. So I, I got drafted in my junior year of college and I left school and relocated from Wichita, Kansas, which is where I was going to school at Newman University to San Diego. And I finished my degree at San Diego State. <clears throat> but I, I needed an off-season job. And so I, it was my off-season job while I was playing. And when I stopped playing, it became my, my job. And I stayed and worked full-time and finished school there. But it really wasn't until I took a job with Diversified Products, which came a little bit later. I went from Oshman's to Sportmark and started a position there that was an addition to my regular job, which was a, a department manager of the store. They had a position that they created called, called cross-training representative. And I did television spots for all of Southern California. So for any TV spots that were going to be airing in San Diego and Orange County in Los Angeles, uh, whether it was about fishing, I did a fishing segments on deep water fishing, I did freshwater fishing segments, I did how to buy a camping tent, I did rollerblades that just come out, so they gave me a pair of rollerblades, I strapped them on on a Friday, I, I practiced at the Marriott parking lot that was under construction in San Diego on Saturday and Sunday, and on Monday I did a segment for San Diego NBC, on Wednesday I believe it was, I did one for in LA, and I did another one in San Diego on Friday. Uh, it was one of those where they put it out and a bunch of stations picked it up and they videotaped me rollerblading and it was the hottest sensation. <laughs> did you fall? Did you fall that first time? Oh, when I practiced on them I did. I skated as a kid so it really wasn't that hard skating. It was skating on sidewalks where they have you know, 15 inch drops off of a curb that you don't know that there till you get there. So uh, that was a little precarious. I didn't fall. I kept my balance but I, I did those segments for all sorts of things. How to buy a bicycle, buying your first baseball glove, there was all sorts of segments that would happen. And that job led into another part of it, which was I did training for sales associates at our corporate offices in Norwalk, California, on selling and selling techniques. And it wasn't specific to a category. It was how to greet customers, how to ask questions, how to probe, and how to do add-on sales. And so it wasn't unique to any specific category, but I would do it specifically as examples on buying shoes and selling socks and, and, and shoe inserts, uh, I would do it with, you know, buying a bicycle and asking the question, you know, do you carry groceries, do you need a basket, you know, things like that that you would, you would probe. And that's where I met the representatives from Diversified Products, which is called DP. Mm -hmm. And they offered me an opportunity to move back to Chicago and handle a sales territory of Indiana, Illinois, and Michigan. And that's really where my fitness-specific career started because when I was working retail, I was the, the manager for the fitness department, but I also managed team sports and the bicycle business as part of the business as well. But, you know, I had an affinity for fitness because I worked out. It was my off-season job, but I also was very active in, in working out. And I did sell memberships at Jack Lambert's Health Club in San Diego as another job so I could get free membership. <laughs> so you 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 don't sit still. You will do anything for a dollar. It's amazing. Well, you know what? When when your rent's due, yeah. Now, now the good news, I don't want it to make it sound like I was living hand to mouth because I clearly wasn't. 
Major League Baseball has a tremendous program. It's the scholars program that they offer. They pay for your school. Uh, and it's not by the team that signs you. It's actually Major League Baseball. It's through the, through the commissioner's office out of New York. And at that time, I got $2,200 a semester for my room board, my tuition, and my books, which in San Diego paid for everything. So it paid for my tuition, it paid for all my books, and it paid for my room and my board. And I could, I could live on that if I needed to, but I, I worked full time and I put that money away. And I also refereed basketball. So I, at the same time as I was working at Oshman's full time, I was refereeing basketball and I was going to school full time. Mm -hmm. so, so whenever people talk about not having time, I always say, you know, it's about priorities because you have time. There's 24 hours in a day and it, let's just say you're going to sleep nine of them. Well, you know, according to my math, that gives you 15 hours to do a lot of other stuff, and I had plenty of time. Yeah. I always say to myself when I'm thinking, like, I don't have time to do anything, how does Puff Daddy do it? <laughs> like, how does that guy, or Jay-Z, how are those guys doing a million things at once? Clothing lines, making music, all that stuff? Um, they hire really good people to help them. That's part of it. That That is a part of it. And and so so you go to, so do you go on, is Diversified, is that Life Fitness? No, Diversified Products at the time was the largest fitness manufacturer in the world and this is back now 23 years ago they were a million square foot manufacturing plant in Opelika Alabama they had offices in in England they had offices in Germany and they sold to Walmart and Kmart and at the time Herman's service merchandise really anybody that you could imagine Sears Roebuck was their one of their first customers, their largest customers. They invented their first product was an invention. The two founders were football players in college. Bob James played football at Auburn. His brother Cal James played at Georgia Tech. And they invented the, the, the plastic cement filled weights in 1961. And I mean they're in the Sporting Goods Hall of Fame. The, the business grew to be almost $300 million back in the late 80s. And uh, by the time I joined, they had treadmills, they had exercise bikes, they had a basketball backboard business, which was the NCAA endorsement as opposed to the NBA endorsement. And they had this gigantic manufacturing facility selling to the largest retailers in the world. Hmm. And so and I handled a three state territory. And there you are discovered by Augie? I am. I actually met Augie in 1991 at the NSGA show in Chicago and had a, a friendship with him that was industry related. And in 1993, in Q4, I got a call from Life Fitness's internal recruiter, which I had an association with Life Fitness where we had, we being diversified products, I had moved from sales to marketing with them. Life Fitness had flown down, not Augie, but their VP of Engineering and two other people from Product Management and Engineering, flew down to look at us manufacturing products for them to sell consumer direct. And it didn't work out. We ended up, just, neither one of us were willing to, uh, to do what it took to, to make the relationship work. So we just agreed to disagree and moved on. But I, I, I got to know them. But this recruiter called me and said they had an opportunity in Chicago with a leading manufacturer. And I said, is it Life Fitness? And she said, I really can't set. And I said, well, if it's not Life Fitness and you're calling yourself a leading manufacturer, then you're lying to yourself and you're <laughs> lying to me. To which she laughed and said, okay, it's Life Fitness. I said, okay, I'm is that so recruiter still there? 
No, she actually, her husband was in his residency, and uh, they had had some small children, and when he came out of his residency as a doctor, she uh, she quit working and went full-time as a mother. Great, great lady. But um, I, I wish I had married a doctor. <laughs> mistake. <laughs> Number one mistake I've made. You wouldn't be making know. a living on this podcast. <laughs> That's there are, right. There's some challenges. There's some right. challenges. <laughs> but I, uh, I interviewed with them at the Super Show. And uh, came up a week later and, and interviewed at Life Fitness here. The fun, the anecdotal story was, as I was getting off the elevator at the uh, Weston Hotel in Atlanta, which is where the Super Show was at, I ran into Augie and another guy who ended up being my boss, and they both smiled and, and laughed and patted me on the back and said, "Good luck." <laughs> a week later, I was here in Chicagoland area interviewing with Life Fitness, which I ultimately interviewed with Augie, and uh, they offered me the job, and I turned in my resignation and. Uh, about two and a half weeks later, I was here in Chicago working at Life Fitness. Mm-hmm. So I have a question. That that first time you meet Augie, uh, you know, clearly uh, Augie saw something very impressive in you. Uh, what was impressive about Augie? In that sort of that first, first sort of moment, you yeah, first time you met him. Uh, it's just his personality. You know, I, the, they were launching some consumer a consumer stair climb or a consumer treadmill and a couple of consumer bikes at the show in Chicago. And I came back to our booth. Actually, I was hitting baseballs at the at the ATEC booth. Show <laughs> off. Yeah. So I, I had left. I went to lunch, and I they had a, a, a hitting device, an indoor, like poly balls that you could hit in a cage. And they had a cager, and I came back, and I was kind of had a little bit of a glow to me. <laughs> I, had, I had tucked my tie into my shirt. I'd taken my sport coat off and rolled my sleeves up, and. So I came back to our booth, and somebody said, hey, there's this guy looking for you. And I go, who's that? And he go, Aguinaldo. I go, from Life Fitness? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, his booth is right across the aisle from ours. So I walk over there, and I said, I said, is Augie here? And they said, yeah, he's with customers. I said, okay, we'll just tell him that Chris Clawson stopped by. And he came over a little bit later in, into our booth and gave me a real good firm handshake and said, you know, I, people who know you speak very highly of you, and I uh, just wanted to come over and say hi. And I said, well, that's great to meet you. And, you know, I spoke to him for maybe five minutes. But, you know, I just had a had an aura about him. When you decide that you're going to go work for Life Fitness, the first day you're there, uh, what is it that you see that's different uh, about Life Fitness versus some of the other companies you've worked at? Well, I really can only compare it to, I mean, worked retail, so it's a completely different animal, but I'll compare it to DP. D, DP was far more complex in its manufacturing because at Life Fitness when I joined we were an assembly only manufacturer so we had a 110,000 square foot assembly facility where we made cardiovascular equipment. At DP we had a million square feet of manufacturing that we took raw steel coming in on coils and turned them into tubes and we had CNC machines cutting out wood for our our backboards and for our, our weight benches and we had a gigantic machine that they invented called the Super John that filled it was three stories high and filled plastic weights with a cement slurry. And we had, I mean, we had amazing manufacturing. It was just, when you go from a million square feet of manufacturing, we had a, a hundred trucks, semi-tractors and 190 trailers. And we were in the trucking business. So I, you know, it was, it was a far more complex place that I worked, but the business itself wasn't nearly as dynamic. The business was selling to retailers and the retailers all did sort of the same thing with the same sorts of product. And all the only difference was is who broke price fastest. 
you know, who took something that was selling amazingly well at 299 and got it to 199 first. <laughs> so, you know, the, it was the goofiest business, and it's a crazy business model, which I will tell you is the flaw of most retailers today when it comes to retail uh, fitness equipment, is they're stuck on price points, and they're not providing nearly the value that they need to, to, to their customer. They do it in every other category of business except for fitness. It's a joke. See, and you can quote me on that one. It's, it's the area where the only retailer that has figured it out, in my estimation, of the large mass retailers is Sears. They're the only ones that have figured it out. The rest of these guys are still chasing after price points that go back 25 years ago. But that's what I left the business that was very much dominated by large retailers who were trying to break price as fast as they could and get, and get they just wanted to move volume. And I came to Life Fitness and it was about creating value and creating innovation and it was a commercially driven company, but even the consumer derivatives were about value creation and, and people having the product for a lifetime and people writing you know, letters and testimonials saying, I've had my life cycle bike for eight years and I love it. It's the greatest thing I've ever owned. It's, you know, it's just a, it was a, a, about passion and an affinity for an industry where at DP and in that, that part of the business, it was all about selling a bunch of product to people who wanted to sell a bunch of product and didn't care if it ever got used. Mm -hmm. what's, the, what's the first decision you make at Life Fitness? The first what's, decision I make? Yeah, the first like, big decision, decision that got you, you on the map at the company, yeah. Well, I came in as a product manager running the treadmill business, and the, the product managers that they had in place already were far less experienced because they didn't spend time in a large manufacturing environment. I mean, I worked, basically I had baptism by fire, but they also weren't salespeople. So I, I went from being a retail salesperson and retail manager to being a field salesperson handling large accounts. I mean, I handled accounts that were multi-regional, like Montgomery Ward, like Sport Mart, like MC Sporting Goods. I helped with larger accounts like Sears. I handled True Value Hardware and Ace Hardware. So I had sales experience, which none of the product people at Life Fitness had. But I also had an understanding of how it is that you communicate with customer as a salesperson. So getting to the benefit to them and how they use what we're talking about to sell memberships, I had a huge advantage in that sense. So the first decision I think that was made for me was to start throwing me in front of customers. Whereas in the past, the product managers were in the background and the salesperson was in the foreground. I established a relationship with the sales guys really early on and I moved into the foreground and the sales guys either stood at my side and, and let me do my thing. Or in some cases, if they were really uncomfortable with the situation, they stepped back and said, do your thing, buddy. You know, let's, let's make this thing happen. And so you're, and that's in your first, uh, your first in, Incarnation, is that the word? Incarnation. Incarnation. Yeah, I, so I started as a product manager of the treadmill business, which within the categories that we had, it was the largest single category, but it was about not quite a year and a half later uh, when my boss left the business, he moved on to a, 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 another job and uh, they came to me and said, you know, we want you to take over the, the cardio business, which at the time was 96% of our revenue, and it was an interim position. So I was the interim director of product management for cardiovascular. And, and I said, okay, that's great. And it's probably, I'm going to 
ballpark it here. It was less than a week. It was a few days, but it was less than a week. Augie came in my office and said, this interim position is bullshit. Either you can do the job or you can't do the job, and I'm going to get rid of this interim title, but I want you to tell me that you feel like you can do this job. And I looked at him and said, absolutely, I can do this job. I can do this job all day long. And so the interim position went away, and I became director of cardiovascular product management at age 31. And you know, I didn't really feel a lot of pressure because I felt like I knew what I was doing. I felt like the people I worked with were really, really smart. And I felt like I had all the resources I needed to be successful. And uh, you know, when I looked, looked back at it years later and said, hey, when you've got 96% of your company's revenue that you're responsible for and you're you know, three decades old, but I never felt that way. How did you change the way Life Fitness – how did you change the cardio di division at Life Fitness? How did you put your, your, your fingerprints on it? Well, I don't want to say it. I wouldn't put it that way. I think what I would say is I changed the way that product management worked with engineering and the way that product development worked at Life Fitness. And I changed it by the people that I worked with and the people that I hired and the way that we went about doing what we did. In the past, it had been very much engineering and manufacturing dominated. And because we created credibility with the sales force and with the customers and we spent a lot more time in the marketplace, uh, we pushed the engineering group to get uncomfortable, but we never left them hanging out to dry. We never let anybody fail. And if there was a failure, if it was even a trip or a fall, we were all in it together. And so I would tell you that the, the biggest difference is became, we became far more market-focused and far more involved in the marketplace to be market-driving as opposed to being market-driven. And I'll explain what that means in a second, but we had a great relationship with our engineering VP. He was a super, super bright guy. He was a 25-year veteran of GE, had been with Life Fitness going back to the Bally days. And he was very difficult to work with when we first got there, when I first got there, because he, wa he was set in his ways. And over the course of the, of the first probably two years, he had a major shift in the organization. He started hiring differently, hired different skill sets, people who were younger and a little more ambitious. While we kept a lot of our owls around, we needed some falcons to fly faster. Uh, and it, that was the biggest change. And I would tell you it wasn't, it wasn't because of me. It was because of the approach that I had and the way that others embraced the approach and, and went from there. So from your, from your first uh, stint at, at Life Fitness to today at Life Fitness, um, what have you seen? What's the one thing that's changed the most? Well, first of all, we have a much bigger business. When I joined Life Fitness, we were $80 million. And, you know, we we're a $650 million company now. So 52% of our sales take place outside the U.S. When I joined Life Fitness, we were a, a national company. And we were very much an American company. And we were doing business internationally. Now we are very much an international company, and the U.S. is a very large portion of that business. But we're the only manufacturer of fitness equipment that is, has anywhere close to the balance of business that we do. And it's, it's required us to understand the marketplace as being a global marketplace and the customer being a global customer and the end user member being a global person. I mean, it's the... The anthropomorphic models for somebody out of Asia are completely different than Western Europe and the United States. So you're, you have to develop your product to meet 
a different audience, different requirements, both language and you know biomechanic and ergonomic requirements. So it's, so, it's a far so, more dynamic business in that sense. So we've we've asked this question of, of everybody who we've interviewed for Gym Class Heroes, and we've never actually gotten a straight answer. What's the worst decision you've made? Are we talking in life or are we talking in business? <laughs> you know, you. we still never get a straight answer. We never well, get in, a straight answer, Lee. In in life, her name was Psycho. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great learning experience on what you want to avoid in the future. But uh, I was young and I was able to, uh, to to rebound and recover. And she referred to herself as Psycho too. I mean, that's not your doing. I'm she, sure she didn't. But I think those who knew her. Would definitely would that that name would, uh, would would resonate with them, and they would be able to tell you her name. Have you reconnected <laughs> with her on Facebook? That's the real question. Psycho on Facebook. <laughs> I would tell you in business. I don't, I don't know that I have anything that I would completely change. I, there are things that you when you, when something fails and you say, hey, if I knew what I knew then, you know, if I knew then what I know now, I would do something differently. But it's not. It's they're not things that I. I would change because if you didn't have that experience, then it wouldn't lead you to better decisions in the future. And I, I've said this this many times, and I've given examples of sometimes our 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 greatest failures as a company have led to our greatest successes. And we had a catastrophic failure on our front drive elliptical back in the in the, in the uh, late 1990s, where we had a weldment that was slightly out of square. Uh, it's something you could never catch. It was, I mean, we're talking about being off by by fractions of an inch, but it created a lot of wear on our drive belt, and we had to, to, to literally bring back everything that we had in the field and rework it because it couldn't be fixed in the field. Okay. Our ability to do that and, and the, the seamlessness that we did recall several thousand units that were in the field and being used without disrupting our customers' business proved to our customers that even in a catastrophic failure, not only can we fix it, but we do it really well, and it doesn't even disrupt your business. So, you know, if I could have avoided it, I mean, it would have saved us millions and millions of dollars, but it proved to our customers that we, we stand behind our product, and when we come out the other side, you know, it all, it's all good. What about, uh, let me ask you this, the flip side of the question, which is, what's the luckiest thing that happened to you in business? Great thing that happened to your career. You can't really take credit, but, man, you're lucky that happened. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna play the personal side of it because it has something to do with business. I met my wife at Life Fitness 19 years ago, so I will tell you it's business. I'll come back to the question specifically, but you know I, I met my wife here at Life Fitness. We worked together for 13 years at Life Fitness, and uh, you know never would have happened if I hadn't come here. So that's that's the first part. The second part is the luckiest thing that ever happened. You know I, I will tell you that I've run into people and have created relationships with people that have come back to be very successful for us as a company. And there's so many of those that I, I don't even I could list them all. I, the luckiest thing I would tell you is probably meeting Augie because meeting Augie led to my career at Life Fitness. And then, then knowing him, both the good things and the bad. You know, I mean, Augie is a great guy. And I, there's, if you ask me about mentors, I have lots of different people in my life. But I, I always segment Augie and I call it the, Gen 1 Augie and Gen 2 Augie. And Gen 1 Augie was a great friend and a, a business mentor and 
a person that, that gave me a lot of confidence that anything's possible. Gen 2 Augie is the greatest person I've ever known, and that's the Augie that was post-ALS uh, and the guy who's gone out there and created Augie's Quest and raised $37 million and, and you know, was director of the year in California. When he's going up against guys who are heads of boards of directors that are completely ambulatory and have the ability to speak and to articulate their thoughts instantaneously. And here's a guy who's in a wheelchair that speaks with software who was the director of the year in 2012. I mean, the guy's he's amazing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's the, the most fortuitous thing that ever happened was running across him and having him be an influence in my early career, um, which I would tell you was great. But what he's done in the last seven and a half years has been spectacular. So that's I know why I spend all my time with that I do with MBA. Yeah. It's why I, I help fundraise. It's why I never have to call a vendor twice to raise money. I send them an email, I follow up a phone call, and I get a donation because everybody gets it. Absolutely. You yeah, uh, I gotta say, one of the most amazing things this year at Augie's Quest was uh, was watching him use the the uh, the leg press, I, and, I, and if I remember correctly, Life Fitness des specifically designed a, a leg press that he could do. I Gary mean, Jones and Greg Highsmith teamed up on that product and created a product, uh, something that he could actually exhibit the gains that he'd made. I don't. I can honestly say I don't think there was a dry eye in that uh, in that room that 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 evening. It was, it was, uh, it was chilling. It really was amazing. Yep, I agree. Yeah. So I was, uh, you talk about mentors and influences and I know, uh, I know you're a car guy, uh, yeah. through and through talk to me about where your love of cars comes from. And I got to imagine it plays a big role in the way you look at equipment and whether that's packaging, marketing, or every aspect of it. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it's, some would tell you it's a fault <laughs> because I, I, I'm loathe to, to uh, not use a uh, car analogy because I think it's a, it's, it's quite applicable. It's probably the most easily recognizable, particularly when you're having discussions with people from outside the U.S. because you can talk in terms of brands and, and things that they understand that are durable goods that, you know, whether it be a brand like Mercedes-Benz or BMW or Porsche, there, you can have conversations across boundaries. But my father is a car guy. His father was not. My grandfather was a car was a hammer. Car was a screwdriver. A car was a lawnmower. It was a tool. It was a thing that you got you from point A to point B. You know, he he, he was totally utilitarian in his approach to the vehicle, to the point where he had a garage filled with junk and a car that sat outside. And my dad used to say to him, "Dad, come on, really? You just bought a brand new car and it's sitting outside. And you got a bunch of junk in the garage. It's worthless." But my dad was a car guy from the time he was real little, and. Uh, from the time I was little, I was a car guy. My dad was a claims adjuster and had a body shop in our backyard in our garage. We lived in a you know suburban south you know south suburban Chicago neighborhood. Um, he had a garage business that he ran on the side where he did insurance work for friends and customization of cars. And so I was out there all the time when I was a little kid and just loved cars, built model cars, had Hot Wheels and Matchboxes, and you know I just always loved cars. So. I would tell you that that's where it started, and it's kind of grown from there. What's your the car you're most proud of in your in your garage? Well, you know, I have I have a lot of cool stories. You know, my first car as a kid came at age 15. I actually sold it about seven years ago, and, and it was a 57 Thunderbird, 
Uh, a good friend of mine that I grew up with, uh, I should say good friend because he was quite a bit older, but a kid I grew up with uh, was joining the Pro Bowlers Tour. This is back in the late 70s and was selling his 57 T-Bird that his parents had bought for him in Southern California. This is, we grew up in Indiana uh, to buy a motorhome to travel on the PBA Tour. And I just casually came up to him and said, hey, Rick, when are you going to sell your T-Bird? And he said, well, actually, I am. I'm getting ready to sell it. I said, really? So I went to the payphone, if you remember the days of the payphone. And I called my dad at work because we were in bowling league together. And I said to my dad, they're selling their T-Bird. So we came over that night. We negotiated a deal. The next morning, my dad showed up and we bought the car. And as we were driving it home, my dad looked at me and said, this car is mine. And he's pointing to himself. He said, this car is mine. And you sign your first professional baseball contract, this car is yours. In the meantime, you can take care of it. You can drive it as long as you don't do something crazy. And... It'll be your car to, to enjoy. So it was unique, the unique portion of that was the prescriptive portion of the conversation, which was my dad always wanted me to, to do the things that really would make me happy in life. And my goal since I was a little kid, since I was able to articulate, was to play professional baseball. And my dad saw this as a way to dangle a carrot in front of me. And you know, we, had the, we had the wherewithal to do that, which was fortunate. That's officially the coolest story. We got, so, just to recap that, you had baseball, bowling, dad, and a 57 <laughs> Thunderbird in one story. That is officially the un coolest story. Unfortunately, I think it probably led to Psycho, and that's where things go wrong. <laughs> well, she came much later. Uh. So that's, I would tell you that's my, my favorite from a story perspective, but I have a car in my garage that I've owned for 32 years as of June. I have a 70 Chevelle SS convertible that I got when I was a junior in high school. My dad bought it at the auto auction. It wasn't a classic car then. At that time, it was a car that was 10 years old, and it was a gas hog because it had a big block engine in it. And I had my mom convince my father to sell it to me because he was dead set on selling the car and making a quick profit. And uh, so my mother said to my dad, he's been working for you since he was nine years old. And all he's asking for you to do is sell him the car for what you paid for it. You're going to sell him the car. <laughs> and fast forward 32 years later, it still sits in my garage. And invariably, whenever I go out in the car, people say, wow, that's a great car. How long have you had it? Preparing for me to say three years or five years, whatever. And I would say, I got it in June, June 8th of 1980. Mm. And you go, oh, my God. Very cool. It was a car I smuggled my girlfriend and my, boy, my buddy's girlfriend into the, the theater at least three different times. <laughs> the YNW Theater in Merrillville, Indiana. <laughs> that, by the way, that's why we do Gym Class Heroes, because that's a cool story. Yeah, nobody ever knew that Chris Clausen smuggled bodies in the back of a car <laughs> until this. Smuggling them in is easy. The problem is getting them out. Like, where do you go to get them out? And so what we used to do is park our car sideways before we pulled into the, the parking spot in front of our buddy's car. We don't just have a buddy, and we just open the garage. Because if you're parked in your parallel road, everybody can see you doing it. <laughs> in a Chevelle. Yep. Plenty of room in the trunk. Plenty of room in the trunk. Um, so a couple questions to, to go back to, to the health and fitness industry and health and wellness industry. What's uh, If there was a piece of equipment that you wish you guys had invented, and you guys, I mean, either you personally or, or, or the folks at Life Fitness. What's, what's that one piece of equipment you're like, man, I wish I'd come up with that? Spinning bike. 
Why so? There's there's all sorts of inventions that people had that are great after the fact, but the spinning bike is one that I wish that we had invented because we're inventors of life cycle. And we have our own bike now. It's taken us a while. We partnered with somebody else before, but uh, I wish we had invented spinning. I wish we I wish we had invented the bike, and I wish we had invented the concept of spinning itself. But you know, Johnny G did that, and he did a great job. And uh, so I tell you, that's the one. So is was is spinning is spinning big because uh, of the bikes, or is spinning big because of the programming uh, that came along with the bikes? Oh, I think it's the programming. The, the, the bikes were, were the tool in that programming. It's sort of like saying, you know, basketball is popular because the the, the backboards, the rims, and the, the basketball court. You know, I mean, you, you play the game on the court, you got to have it, and the equipment's gotten better, the balls are better, and the backboards are better, and they break away rims, but it's the game that's what makes it special. The, ga the game that made it special is what made the, the category became, become what it's become, and now the tools that have been required to get better. But, I, you know, I wish we would have been responsible for both. What other voids in the industry do you see? I mean, if, if there's things that you, I, I know you can't give away proprietary information, but just generally, what what voids have you seen, do you see, and think, you know, I just think the industry could really be benefit from going in this direction? Well, I, I actually have an easy answer for you. The, the largest void is the 70% of the population in the world that doesn't work out and figuring out how to get to them because you know, the way that we look at it, and I'm not going to say this is exact science, but there's there are approximately 15% of the population that, that enjoy working out and enjoy exercise at, at different levels. There are 15% of the population or so that just aren't going to work out for all different reasons, whether it's socioeconomic or you know the, the ability to get to a facility or, or they just choose not to do any exercise. And there's that 70% that's in the middle that either just doesn't work out for all different reasons but really kind of want, wishes they could, or works out every once in a while, but not on a regular basis. So I, I think that's the greatest opportunity. Uh, it's, it's, think about our industry as it exists today. And if, if it were to increase by 5%, 5%, you're talking about a 30% increase in business. If 5% of the population were to get involved in exercise, it's a 30% increase in opportunity. There's almost no industry in the world where having 5% of the population increase ends up with that sort of bottom line improvement to not only our industry, but to the world. So how? I mean, what, what, what's missing? What's, what's the first thing you do to, to start inching up that 5%? Well, you know, I, I talked about the seatbelt law, and I think this is probably the easiest. There's a car analogy for you, so I've gotten one in today. <laughs> well yeah. done. You know, when, when I ask into a large group, how many of your grandparents wore seatbelts when they when you were a kid? And I've never seen anybody raise their hand. I mean, unless you got kids in there whose, you know, parents are 50 years old. But how many of your grandparents wore seatbelts? Nobody raises their hands. How many of your grandparents wore seatbelts now? And they all raise their hand because the law changed. And there was, a, there was an advantage to wearing a seatbelt that always existed, which was this empirical data about safety and surviving crashes and all these other things, but still people didn't, didn't advocate for the technology. And then all of a sudden there's this law that goes into effect, it's click it or ticket, and people start wearing seatbelts. And 
I believe that there's going to be a point in time where people are going to recognize that negative behaviors need to be treated as a ticket and positive behaviors need to be rewarded. And that's the game changer. So let me ask a follow-up question. And this might be a little bit controversial answer, so if you if we need to edit afterwards, don't don't uh, <laughs> don't hesitate. So they recently uh, they recently made an announcement that obesity is actually a disease. Um, do you believe that it's a disease that is it a disease like uh, uh, like MDA uh, that nobody you can't prevent, or do you believe that there's a personal sense of responsibility that the people who are obese or have gotten fat uh, need to take on? Well, I. I'm a laissez-faire libertarian when it comes to my, my perspective on the world. I mean, I think people have a responsibility for themselves. And I believe this is a great example of somebody trying to assign responsibility to others for individuals, which means, you know, it's the, 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 the commentary that's been made by some politicians that it takes a village to raise a child, which is nonsense. You know, People that live out in the middle of nowhere raise children and don't have a village raising them. It's 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 about the the, the inputs that you have, the positive inputs, and the, the formation of the belief structure that you have. And what made America and most of the world successful for a millennia is people taking responsibility for themselves and for their families. And I think it's a great example of somebody trying to make it society's responsibility for somebody to be fit or be healthy, not even fit, be healthy. And it's an individual. The individual is the one that decides what am I going to eat, how much of it am I going to eat, and what am I going to do, and how much of it am I going to do, what am I not going to do. Um, it's it's combination of, of taking individual responsibility and reinforcing that in society. And that goes back to the whole click it or ticket thing. You know, if somebody wants to sit on a couch for 10 hours a day and feed themselves foods that are not beneficial to their well-being, that's not society's job to solve that problem. It's society's job is how to deal with the problem because you're not going to change their behavior, particularly if you now give them, it's not my, it's not my fault, it's not my responsibility, it's, I'm not to blame. Well, yeah, you are to blame in most cases. Now, I'm, I'm going to say there are exceptions, clearly, but you can't make it a disease by the definition of disease as we've traditionally defined it because you do have control over the situation. Mm -hmm. You get to choose. So, If you have no money, if you have no money, shouldn't that mean that you have the ability to choose what you're going to put in your body almost better than somebody who has an endless supply of cash. Because somebody has an endless supply of cash can go eat at the buffet all day long. I mean, they can go, they can go from one buffet to the next buffet to the next buffet. I mean, it's just it's counterintuitive when they use it as an economic conversation because for years and years and years, people who were rich, people who were middle class, and people who were poor were not obese. It wasn't an economic decision. It's a decision about what it is you put in your body and how much activity you, you're, you have in your day. So I do think there's a social element to making it important for society and for the long-term well-being of our country and other countries to have people be healthy, but I don't think it's society's responsibility to take care of 
somebody's eating habits by dictating what size drinks go into a machine. Right. So, so given that, and given sort of the explosion, and and by the way, Life Fitness uh, is obviously on the cutting edge of of incorporating technology into their equipment. You know, the the days of a forty pound weight and you know steel and iron, I think, are you know somewhat moving away. We're moved away from that, but. What, how is the how is internet how is technology going to change uh, or encourage or help uh, bring more people into the into the fitness world? Well, you know, technology is first of all, it's everywhere. I mean, when we think about technology and 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 how it's permeated fitness, technology used to be a conversation about a console and you know LEDs and you know dot matrix or LCDs and. Technology now is is it's it's not just the internet, you know it's 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 wired and wireless, it's television, it's video, it's tracking of exercises, it's asset management. So, you know, looking at the products that you own, if you're a health club operator, it's trainers being able to communicate with their with their clients remotely, it's being able to leave your health club and go on vacation but still track your exercise. So it's apps, it's the phone, it's a confluence of all the things that you have in in your life finding their way into and out of the fitness business. And so it's, it's changed really everything about fitness, both from entertainment and from a user perspective, as well as you know, the way you service the equipment. I think what's most important is if we talk about this click it or ticket and we talk about positive behaviors being reinforced, it's the ability to track your activity and, and the things that you do nutritionally that are going to help people be successful and not get ticketed. What do you think gyms do wrong? What do you think the fitness industry does wrong in terms of uh, uh, th that that hurts the industry from growing that that percentage? Any glaring well, you know, things? I, it's when you, the industry is so broad, if you think about it, it's yeah. sort of like asking about the ocean. You know, <laughs> the ocean's different depending on where you're at. You know, it depends on what time of year it is, and it depends on whether you're in the south southern hemisphere or the northern hemisphere. If you're in the east coast of the U.S. or the west coast. They're so different. I'll, I'll speak to, let's call it health and wellness and fitness. The area where I think we have our greatest opportunity to do something different is instead of continuously always looking at the opportunity in front of us, which is the 15%, is asking the question is, is if I really truly wanted to get after that other 70% or just a percentage of the other 70%, what things would I do differently? And I think there are a lot of club operators that are doing that. And, and, and some of them are doing it by going into locations that didn't used to have health clubs. So the franchise model has changed that, where they're going into smaller markets because somebody can open up a small gym and they can make that happen, whereas a large health club couldn't justify it because there's not enough people there. So that's part of it. Corporate-based fitness centers have done some of that. You know, the YMCAs and, and some of the, the, uh, the, the more social-based um, fitness facilities where they have not just fitness, but they have all the, the things that to bring in, let's call it the, the uncommitted to fitness. So they have classes on walking or they do, you know, low impact exercise and they're trying to get after older actives. There's, there's so many different ways to go at it. Um, and then there's the whole cost. You know, if you, people said, it was funny, I can still remember this, you can't make money and they would pick a price point. You can't make money at $20 a month. You can't make money at $15 a month membership. You can't make money at $10 a month membership fee. Well, all those can't stories have been changed. 
And so now you're getting after a group of people who maybe couldn't afford a health club membership 10 years ago, and now they can. So, so you, I, mean, I think it's lots of things. So I want to follow up on something you said earlier uh, and, and sort of tying in some of your retail experience with, your, uh, with the comment you just made. You said one of the big mistakes that retailers made was taking an item that was selling at $2.99 and doing great and now selling it for $1.99. Um, in the fitness industry, we used to sell an item for $69.99 and now the $9.99 model is pretty prevalent. Uh, how is that different? Oh, it's completely different because you're talking about expectations and levels of service. So if you look at, I'll just take two ends of the spectrum. You look at a, at a low cost model, which we'll call it sub $20, because it depends on whether it's in the U.S. or if it's sure. international. And if sure. you look at a premium model, which can be north of $100, can be approaching several hundred dollars a month. People are, are looking for value that matches their expectation. So in a low-cost model, they may have very little touch in their environment. They may have no training. They may have no group exercise. They may you know, have no wet area, so they don't have swimming. They may not even have showers. So you know, you're getting a value that's commensurate with your expectation. And in a, in a top-end environment, you may have world-class training that's one-on-one. -on -one. You may have classes upon classes and different levels of those classes and large spaces to do small group exercise and large group exercise. I mean, you may have all sorts of opportunities. You may have a spa, you know, some climbing walls. So there's a, you're creating different levels of value. In the retail model, what I'm talking about is they only offer to a large segment of the population poor value product. It's not the price point. It's that the manufacturers can no longer provide product that, that performs at the level of the expectation of the end user at the price points being dictated by the retailer. So when you say a $7.99 treadmill, the $7.99 treadmill literally cannot stand up to somebody who is 250 pounds working out 45 minutes a day, five days a week. It will not work. It will break. That's not true of the shoe that they sell. The shoe that they sell will work. The detergent that they sell will work. The clothing will work. This product will not work. So the price points that they're stuck on are old price points, and the manufacturers with the price of steel and petroleum and everything else, nobody can make any money on them anymore, so therefore they stay at these price points and the products just don't work. Gotcha. Um, we, we want to wrap it up and, and send you through our, our, our sort of uh, quick hit questions, but the, la the last thing I want to ask you is um, – did uh, you know you're you've done so many things you're such an entrepreneurial guy you very smart guy um and and you really uh have neat vision for what the industry can do and what your products can do was there ever a part of you that just wanted to go out on your own and start your own thing from the the ground up oh you know probably not and, and i'll tell you why my father was a sole proprietor of a business and i remember my father sitting at our kitchen table literally in the middle of the night. Uh, I walked down there to get something out of the refrigerator because I was thirsty, and my dad was wringing his hands and had his, his, his head in his hands because interest rates were in the low 20s. He had a brand-new business. He had payroll to make. He 
he had to balance his receivables with his payables, and he literally couldn't sleep at night. And I remember what that was like, and I remember growing up, working with my dad, and all the trials and tribulations of when it's 100% of the responsibility is on your shoulders to make it all come together. And I embraced all the things about that that I really liked, and I respected all the things about it that that were very difficult for my my father and my family. So the closest I came was when I left Life Fitness and I went to Stamina Products, which was a group of guys that I had known for years that were in a in a partnership, and it was homegrown and it was theirs. And I had an opportunity to stand with them and take an equity position and. And I chose to come back to a larger corporation because I just felt more comfortable in that environment. Absolutely. So we, I have a question. I, obviously, you were a, a pretty great athlete in high school, uh, in college, um, and you made uh, you made it uh, into uh, professional baseball. And and fortunately for the health and wellness industry. Uh, you didn't have a, a great fastball or a great eye. Uh, their losses was our gain. But I think the question we all really want to know is, when you were in third grade and you yeah. played dodgeball, how early, how long would you last in the game? Were you one of the, were you the guy who made it through to the end and you were the, everybody was looking at him going, how did he avoid that ball? I didn't avoid the ball. <laughs> I caught it. You caught that was, it. Oh, that, that was the advantage sense. that I had. Is I, I never had the best arm. I always had a good arm. I was an accurate arm, but I could catch everything. So in dodgeball, you know, there's three ways that you get out. One is you get hit because you don't see it. Two is you throw the ball and somebody catches it. And three is everybody hates you. <laughs> so because if everybody hates you, they all throw at you at one time. <laughs> and, and, and you, and that can happen if you're really good at the game uh, because they just want to get you out because you're going to be the guy that spoils it for them. Uh, but it's the, usually the guys that are the most hated are the first to go. And uh, I could catch. So typically I was able to defend myself by blocking with the ball. I could throw in so I could get guys out when I needed to get them out. And uh, when, when it came down to brass tacks, I usually – I won the game because I caught the ball, not because I threw the ball and hit somebody. Gotcha. So, if as I understand it, your third grade uh, dodgeball league was the very first game of Survivor as well. It was like the reality <laughs> TV of of dodgeball. I'm I'm just you know, feeling. I stopped playing dodgeball when I was my junior year of college. So we played dodgeball all the way through high school. I mean, it was a regular gym sport. It wasn't like it was after-school activity. It was just that you always play dodgeball. Not every day, but you, throughout the school year, you used to play dodgeball. If it was a rainy day, you'd come in and they'd throw the, the, you know, the red rubber balls out and you'd go out and play dodgeball. Um, we played in college. College, it was a, a sport that we used to play, particularly baseball players would play in the off-season because we weren't allowed to play basketball because they didn't want us breaking ankles and fracturing elbows and everything else. So we could play, it was a sport we could play. Oh, yeah, dodgeball seems like a good alternative. <laughs> I, love the idea, I love the category of that you, you get out because nobody likes you. <laughs> they yeah, get out well, first. We had guys, I, I could name names, but I won't, where you just, you, it just as soon as you gathered the balls up, you'd say, 
let's just nail so-and-so. Yeah. And you have four guys throw him at one time and just make him go away. But I think of some poor, I think of some poor kid, you know, eight year old weak kid who's playing dodgeball gets out first every time. Cause he's just not as strong as everybody else. And now he's finding that they also don't like him. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't, I, I would tell you that. Although that's the television representation of dodgeball. My experience of dodgeball is the weak guys were usually one of the last guys to go out. Yeah. They hide behind because, the girls. Well, no, because you didn't care about it. You weren't. They weren't gonna. They weren't gonna make the game. Make you win or lose the game. That's true. That's true. They were the ones that you know they're gonna try to stay out of the way and not get hit, and, and you could deal with them later on. It's the guys that were really good. You had to get rid of first because they're the ones that are gonna hit you in the back of the head after you just threw the ball at somebody else. Hoarding your nuts. T- this is this is this is the rules of Survivor. You would have been on reality TV. You would have won the first uh, first season of it. I'm convinced. There was that. always strategy in dodgeball. There was yeah, strategy in dodgeball, I, and I can only imagine if you had played dodgeball with Psycho. I can't even imagine what you would have done to her. <laughs> I, I played co-ed volleyball with Psycho. That was enough. There you go. <laughs> Psycho will be known forever on this yeah, podcast. Forever. So the, our favorite game of word association as we wrap up this uh, fantastic uh, podcast with Chris. Oh, I will All let right. you let you uh, MC. Do we want single words here? Yeah, single we. Words. I have got okay. the words. I have got the words. You have to say the first word that pops into your mind. Um, I will tell you, uh, nobody has ever gone through the whole list without doubling up. So that's a challenge. I'll do it. That. Oh, there you go. All right. Unless you guys want go. definitions, I'll do it. No. All right. So we're gonna give you a word. You tell us the first word that pops into your mind. Uh, here we go. Treadmill. Favorite. Member. Foundation. Employee. Weeding. Retention. Well, I, I sort of had retention employee together because there's this, this there's retention of members, there's retention of of employees. Uh, retention is is good. Good. There you go. Diet. Missing. Exercise. Daily. Biggest loser. Motivating. Spotting. Nope. Healthcare. Politics. Technology. Everywhere. The Nintendo Wii Fit. Past. Locker room. Snapping. <laughs> Gym class. I, I, I'll just use the single word, sweat. Sweat. <laughs> I was hoping for a great answer on locker room, and I, got, I thought you were going to go with smell, but I got to tell you, snap is probably a better answer. Yeah, just as uh, visual. Yeah, just the visual of it. Uh, Chris, can't thank you enough for, for giving us so much of your time. Uh, I think we learned a lot about Chris Clausen, what makes life fitness great. Uh, the people, the leadership. Uh, you know, uh, over the you know over the last couple of years, I've I've had the opportunity to speak to you a couple of times, and always uh, always take away something uh, uh, important that we can apply uh, to our businesses. Uh, so we really do appreciate your time. All right, guys. Well, thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thanks, and this is uh, once again another episode of Gym Class here, is presented by Athletic Business Magazine and the iClubs Conference. November 20th through 22nd, 2013, in Chris's hometown of San Diego, California. And Buck Johnson will be there, so be sure to get your picture (laughs) taken with him. All right, thanks a lot, everybody, and we'll see you next week.
Thus ends another gym class hero.